0: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, I'm scared to go anywhere. I'm an older Asian woman. It's prime target. Outside, it's cloudy with a chance of racism. I'm not going out. I think that white people like to tell Asian people how to feel about race because they're too scared to tell black people.
1: Why is the silence still so pervasive, in your view?
0: Why do I have to fight to be hated? Like, like, I don't (laughs) want to be hated. I'm just telling you that it's a hate. And I think it's like more of a challenge to stay silent about things that I care about.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Aisha Sase, and you're listening to The Accidental Activist, the show where we discover the sparks that ignite people's passion to change the world. My guest this week is a Grammy and Emmy-nominated comedian, actress, musician, and author, who's been labelled an entertainment pioneer, a wild child, the patron saint of outsiders, and believe it or not, at one time, she was even called not Asian enough. Margaret Cho and her trademark cackle have been making us laugh for decades, and throughout that time, she's also been challenging us ridiculing our ideas of stereotypes, otherness, and our notion of who belongs in America. But more recently, her focus has shifted from humor to the rising hate and violence that Asian Americans are currently facing in this country. The long-running fear that continues to lay siege to many in her community has also taken Margaret captive, and those feelings run deep. The targeting of Asian-Americans drives home how labels not only have the power to be inhibiting and reductive, but more than that, can also trigger fear and the prospect of physical harm. So, as I sat down with Margaret, I was keen to understand how she's going about the work of stripping away the toxic labels that have proved so harmful to Asian-Americans and critically, how she's able to successfully fight for change while operating from a place of fear. Using her voice to force us to face uncomfortable truths is what Margaret Cho has always done best. And as I discovered during this hilarious and at times poignant conversation, she's more than ready to get much louder. I hope you enjoy the show. Margaret Cho, welcome to The Accidental Activist.
0: Thank you very much. It is
1: great to have you with us. We are supporters of all things um, great and small, so I must ask, where's
0: Lucia? In her sushi bed, (laughs) right here, being sweet. And then the cats are running around. They just got a little treat keep them quiet because they're kind of chatty. But Lucia's right here.
1: I did think she would be close by, as I have seen in in previous things you've done, that Lucia is also is always close at hand.
0: Yes, she's always right there. I mean, it feels really good, except when it's really hot, it's hard because she'll lay on me and then it makes us both much hotter. Just in case people are wondering who we're speaking about, can you tell them about Lucia? Lucia is my two-year-old rescue chihuahua and here Sarang, my uh, sphinx cat. She's like really close by. She's always very close by too, but she's a little camera shy. But Lucia oh. is my dog and she's always around, you know, and and it's great because I can bring her to shows, you know, when they're happening and, and um, podcasting, she's always very good. She's very quiet and she's very sweet. She is very sweet. And as you
1: mentioned, things slowing down to basically a stop um, with us trying to regain some kind of momentum. What has life been like for you? Because I've, I get the sense, at least when I, when I read about you, that you were always ending a show, starting a show, working on a show, always on the move, touring. And, and I do wonder what has life been like for you being devoid or, or, or starved, you might say, from laughter from a crowd?
0: It's weird. It's really weird. And starting back up again is very strange as well. I think I finally found some sense of... Purpose in being home, and I've been doing a lot of podcasting and also virtual performances, which has been great actually. What it allows me to do is take my anxiety and put it into action. Like, I had a lot of anxiety about the election, and I worked a lot on the Biden Harris campaign virtually, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it really helped. So, you know, ultimately getting the right (laughs) president elected, but it's like, you know, um. What my work then was really about was, like, I was really afraid. And I think what's where my activism starts is, like, what my fear is. Sure. And if I take my fear and I channel it, channel it into action, it really does some good. And so I was working with a lot of Asian-American, Pacific Islander, Democratic outreach, and we were welcoming a lot of Republicans who What were, was that like? It was so weird. It was like they were Asian American Pacific Islanders who had voted Republican their entire lives and finally were fed up,
2: you know? And I don't think
0: I could go the other way. Like I can't see myself being so put off by progressives that I turned conservative. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like there's a show in that somewhere. (laughs) It is really weird. I'm like, I wonder what it would take for me to do the same. And so I was there to sort of be the welcoming wagon and helping them with the transition. And they never let go of their stiffness because it Uh was just like, they're just, they're like, we don't believe in being Democrat. We don't consider ourselves
1: healthcare, universal healthcare. We're not
0: progressives, but we just cannot with this president. And it's like, Okay, I really respect that. I really, really respect that you're here. And it takes an enormous amount of courage to admit that something's wrong and that you're going to make a change. And so I really I was impressed.
1: Are you one of these people who faced with that kind of audience, quote unquote, feels like? I'm going to get them to like me. I'm going to get them to laugh. I'm going to let them get you. you Did you manage
0: it? Yeah, I think so. Because you really are welcoming and I don't want to put them off it. I don't want them to have an experience that says, you know, we were right about them, Democrats. We shouldn't have (laughs) gone there. You know, I want them to feel like they're welcomed and that their courage is rewarded. You know, that's to me a very important thing. And so... I've uh, actually performed in lots of different kinds of weird instances. Like, I accidentally got booked for a uh, big Republican fundraiser, but this was like in the 2000s. So, this is How probably 2003. Well, I think it was just like they were just looking for some kind of diversity, you know, and this was like right when Abu Ghraib oh, happened. Wow.
1: For many Americans, the notorious pictures of abuse inside Iraq's Abu Ghraib prison
0: was a turning point in the way they saw the war. Mm -hmm. So I was talking about that a lot and they were still laughing, even though they were very um, politically against what I was doing. Sure. They still had to laugh because there's a humanity to it that they're connecting with. So, you know, you you just kind of roll with it, I think. It's, it's always valuable to look at yourself, or for me, to look at myself as just an entertainer. And then beyond that, identity can be second. Because if I can just like put that aside for a minute, then it works well.
1: I mean, you said humor and laughter is the intake of breath, which is the preservation of the body for the next moment. Mm-hmm. Have you gained a fresh perspective on the necessity of humor in this moment where humanity has been challenged with the pandemic,
0: yes, because to laugh, it's actually involuntary a lot of the time, or you would hope it is. I mean, in general, of course, when we go see a comedian, or if you go and you watch a comedy on television, you are in the expectation to laugh. But when it catches you off guard, then it's really a like, the like the Republicans, like the Republicans. Yes, yes. <laughs> it catches you off guard, and then you're you're like you have to take a breath. And that's a really uh, life-affirming moment. So I think comedy and laughter works best when it actually is involuntary, because you have to, like, recognize the humanity, you recognize the humanity in somebody else. It is a kind of a, it's a physical namaste.
1: <laughs> it's cool. I see the humanity in you. Yeah, I love it. You're the ultimate multi-hyphenate comedian, actor, musician, podcast host, entrepreneur, activist. I was thinking about this as I prepared for this conversation, that while labels are descriptive, they can also be reductive and restrictive. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how you feel about labels.
0: I think labels can be useful. I, I really admire younger people now who are not necessarily labeling their gender or labeling their um, sexual orientation. Because that gives a kind of freedom that sure. I think is really magical and powerful.
1: Let's talk about the labels that apply to race. Mm-hmm. And and let's talk about in particular labels that are attached to the Asian American community and, and Asians as a whole. Talk to me about those labels as you see them.
0: Well, I think that the label of the model minority has been really harmful because what it does is it sets us apart from... Where
1: does that come from? I just want you to lay that out for us.
0: It's from the 1960s where there was a need to figure out how to hold back civil rights activism. It was part of a... I think it was part of a paper that some professor had written that was really about kind of categorizing the different civil rights movements, the different ways that people emigrate to the United States or um, kind of see themselves in otherness in the United sure. States. And so the model minority myth was kind of constructed around Asian Americans to separate us from larger civil rights movements that were happening at the er- in the era, which was like, you know. This is like a very big time of like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and a real sea change in the way that we were going to view race. So it was really white supremacy trying to pick that apart.
1: Sure. Sure. Divide and conquer.
0: Yeah. And so that's where the um, model minority myth really harms us. You know, it is a it is a true backhanded compliment. And it's also to kind of set out like there's a way to be the other. And that's not.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Right. Like you said, it is to create a kind of caste system of minorities. Yeah,
0: and point to Asians as being at the top. Right. Like there's there's not a sense of unity there. It, it really robs us of this sense of pride and connection with each other, and puts us at odds with each other, which is really unfortunate. Because I think just those two words, model minority, has set us back. For so long. And even within each other, even within the Asian American AAPI community, there's a lot of dissent. I think because of long held uh, rivalries between countries, or even in China, between villages, between like provinces, things that are like weirdly long held biases that we don't even know why we have them anymore because they haven't been relevant for a few generations now
1: and yet they still stand strong.
0: Yes, it's really strange.
1: It's very odd. When did you first become aware of the myth, the labels around being an Asian American, being part of the the larger Asian community?
0: Well, it was something that I think my parents really took on because they came right in the middle of that. They came to America in 1964 and were kind of like the mantle of model minority was placed onto them as soon as they got to this country. And so they never really shook it, even though they always sought communities that were other to live and do businesses. We always lived in black neighborhoods. We always had gay businesses, which is very, um, unusual to be in business in the gay community for Koreans in particular. It's a very patriarchal, very homophobic culture. So to be, in business there is very, uh, odd. You know, it, it's like, I think that their idea of the model minority really kind of filtered in, in the white aspirationalism and the way that like, I would always be, you know, they would always be pushing me to excel in my studies and go to an Ivy League school, which is like such white aspirational yeah. <laughs> thinking.
1: <laughs> and did you, did you have other Asian-American friends when you were growing up? I mean, I'm wondering at what point you started having these conversations. Like, what the hell? Like, what is this? This whole kind of forced assimilation, aspirational whiteness?
0: It really, I split off because I wanted to do drugs. And that kind of made it (laughs) impossible for me to do anything else. Like, I, and I think that in a lot of ways, it really damaged my life and my brain. But it also really helped me to kind of find my way because it was such a rejection of um, that kind of aspirational, white aspirational track.
1: And what kind of drugs? What are we talking about? Oh, everything!
0: Here? Terrible marijuana of the eighties, which was all like seeds oh. and stems, and there was no dispensaries. You you would just have to go to like a child molester's house. I mean, really, like disgusting. And then, so those drugs were not good. So then I took a lot of rave drugs. Um,
1: Pharmaceuticals.
0: Pharmaceuticals. Well, ecstasy, which at the time was illegal, strangely. And uh, hallucinogens. um, Too many. But I really did a lot of brain damage. I'm very sad because I... I know how smart I was before I did this and I really feel a slowing down of the synapses. It's it's quite tragic, but, you know, I can feel the ghost of my brain cells walking around the the haunted house of my brain stem, but it's fine. You have
1: done just fine, Margaret, even with a reduced, uh, as you say, um, reduced brain cell load. Um, And so... You're in this myth. you are trying to reject labels that are being imposed upon you. And then you, as a 14 year old, because I'm stunned by this when I read it, as a 14 year old, you,
0: you find comedy, comedy finds you? Yes, I started doing stand up comedy. I was in a comedy group in school. And then my uh, teacher signed us up for comedy nights at a comedy club in San Francisco I had my first performances with a partner who was Sam Rockwell, who's a very famous mm-hmm. actor. Yeah. And there's a video of us on YouTube. You can watch us do our sketches. She's Snick.
2: She's Snacky Wacky.
0: <laughs> you remember? Yeah. Hey, how about this? Yeah, what? Mutant Ninja Duffians and Bobby Burden Sacrificial Habitat Dance. <laughs> And it's funny because we both look actually much older than we do now. So we're both kind of <laughs> aging in reverse. But it's uh, it's something that I really got into. Like, I really loved the art form of comedy. I really fell in love with sketch comedy and SNL and SCTV and stand-up comedy all, all over. It was, to me, the most exciting movement of art. And it was something that I wanted to engage in and be involved in. I never saw Asian Americans in comedy, but it didn't really right. matter because I, I just loved it. And it, it seemed like if I loved it, then there was a reason to do it.
1: Your comedy now, there's the intersection between race and gender and, and social issues. And what was your POV then bearing in mind, you were at a time where there was a stripping of labels and a, kind of trying to chart your own course.
0: Well, I think that I came into a very weird time in comedy where it was observational comedy. And when sure. now we look at it as saying, oh, well, it's white, cis, male observations of the world. Mm-hmm. And that's really what the time was. And um, so it was less about identity and more about, isn't it strange? Isn't it funny when? And sure. it's like that that was the the norm. And so this idea of like, Being known as a comedian for the way that your brain worked, not who you were, was really important. And So that to me was a struggle. So I just came at it from identity. I just came at it like I'm not supposed to be here. My entire uh, philosophy of comedy is every comedian has one primary joke that they find different words to. Mm -hmm. And so my one primary joke is I'm not supposed to be here, but I am. And so then it's, a, it's like finding different ways to tell that, many different stories to tell that, and it's kind of worked out, you know, for 30 or something <laughs> years.
1: <laughs> I'm wondering how, how that was received. I know, I feel like now it's somewhat easier, but back then, people didn't even want to acknowledge that anti-Asian bias or anti-A- anti-Asian hate was a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of like you're calling out something that so many people don't even want to acknowledge exists.
0: Right. So it's been a slow kind of emergence of feeling visible and feeling like there's been an impact. Like it's just a very gradual. It is um, almost like the continental drift of finally (laughs) like coming out of the ocean and being a landmass. You know, it's like a very slow process. And it's like almost like Hawaii, you know, it's like volcanic. (laughs) There's a (laughs) volcano and then the lava hardens and it's an island. That's really kind of how I I feel like Pele in a lot of ways, the sort of like Hawaiian, like (laughs) volcano goddess who's like creating Hawaii and putting out all these islands, which I think is is really kind of what it feels like. It feels like new land. It feels like new emerging. But in my emergence, it was so new and it was so novel that it caught interest.
1: It's also interesting that the comedy that you were doing, which was so novel and you were striking out to new territory so not so much that it was a question of even whether or not it landed it was just a wholly new landscape it's so different to the comedy centered in blackness Mm -hmm. right where everybody gets it everybody knows it acknowledges it the joke is far more obvious if you will right it's a very very different experience so it makes me me wonder what what you make of that, the fact that, you know, outside of comedy, this notion still prevails that anti-Asian hate, anti-Asian bias and prejudice is not real.
0: Well, it's weird because it's, it's so, to me, very obvious that it's real. And it's also like every time there is a, a very obvious hate crime against Asians, the first thing that comes out of law enforcement or any authority around it is, we're not sure if this is a hate crime. Which to me is like a very. It, it's a, why do I have to fight to be hated? Like, like I don't really want to be hated. I'm just telling you that it's a hate, and it's such a weird position to be in, where you're arguing over whether you have the right to be hated or not. Yes,
1: whether you matter enough <laughs> very, to yeah. be hated. It
0: is very. It's very frustrating. But it's also we see these like very different battles going on all over the place when it talks when talking about race and it's still very mysterious and I, I think it's very frustrating, but it's also important to talk about in comedy. It's helpful for me to process it.
1: And the fact that so much of Asian American history has been erased <laughs> from American history. Yeah. I mean, again, as you talk about frustration, I mean, again, to the difference of with black comedy, where there's so many moments that are readily wrecked touch points that you can mm-hmm. use for your comedy that are known and, if you will, the audience gets. Right. You don't have that same lane. I mean, you can create it, but I'm saying it's just not readily available. Right. Because well, your history in yeah. many ways has been...
0: It's erased, yeah. It's yeah. not yeah. about creating it. It's about creating those, the moments where you can explain the context of things. But a lot of, a lot of all history of any oppressed peoples in America has been erased. And so we're learning so much more about it now, how much has been erased. Um, but it's very much like for Asian Americans, what I found is that whenever America is in crisis, our Americanness comes into question. So that's like during the gold rush, during the, all of the violence in the Chinatowns in the late 1800s, whether it's World War II Changing over the audio industry, or 9-11. 9-11 right. was a major, major hate crime center for Muslim Americans, for uh, South Asian communities, for Sikh Americans, things that are just glossed over.
1: For American Muslims, 9-11 brought the same loss felt by every American, but it also triggered an onslaught of anti-Muslim sentiment. That has only risen in the decades since.
0: So there's so many instances like this. And like, of course, now with the coronavirus, it's like the the strangest thing. But having lived through AIDS and understanding that is my first pandemic. Right. You see that the loss of logic uh, with people committing hate crimes against gay men because of fear of AIDS really corresponds to the same loss of, of logic when it's people committing hate crimes against Asians because of coronavirus.
1: The silence on the part of significant swaths of mainstream America in terms of acknowledging Asian American history, what Asian Americans are going through right now with the rise in anti-hate crimes is compounded by the silence that can be found within the Asian community itself Yes, when it comes to speaking up about these issues. Why is the silence still so pervasive in your view?
0: I think that's really a lot of it is PTSD from families growing up during wartime, fleeing to America, knowing that when you talk about these traumas, they relive them. They haven't had that opportunity to kind of process it and get over it. And so these like long held traumatic experiences can be passed down through generations. And so we see them sort of being reignited, and um, so any kind of processing is really traumatic. Like I know because I, I forced my parents to go to a white therapist. They How were was so that? <laughs> and um, I, I recorded. Was there it a on specific it. reason? Well, it was just what? for us to go through our trauma together to process our trauma. So my parents came from a- after war situations in Korea where the, the country split and they're coming to America to sort of escape that they both grew up during a very, very violent time in Korean history. And so, you know, they came to America and then didn't talk about it again. And then so we went to therapy and they were so horrified. It was so, so long ago that we actually recorded on cassette. And I still have the cassettes, but I don't have a cassette player, so I don't know what <laughs> I can do with the cassette. But um, I may digitize them someday and surprise them with it. They would be very upset. Very upset. <laughs>
1: How has that silence impacted your sense of identity in the community, in your home? I mean, obviously you went to see a therapist with your parents, but that was further on down the line. So how did it impact your sense of identity?
0: Well, my sense of identity is my silence really was um, something that I had to use drugs and alcohol to deal with, you know, because I have such a very well-developed American side, very well-developed pop culture side that's like talk about everything, expose your feelings, even in stand-up comedy. So that my silence was like, I was using drugs and alcohol as like a silencer, which really, those are my issues. So my own trauma is sort of self-created by addiction. So that, that was like one of the reasons why I would go to therapy with my parents. But it's really something that, you know, even though I uh, had like grown up without trauma, I was still containing the trauma that my parents were passing down to me. So mm-hmm. having to silence that with substances was like my own war living within.
1: You have worked through those issues. You you continue because it's, it's we're all working through our issues all the time. Yeah. And you've chosen to now actually... Intentionally use your voice in a public setting to fight against these issues, to yes. speak up against this kind of hate and the silencing and the labels. Yes. Talk to me about that decision. Was there a, a particular moment that triggered that for you?
0: A lot of it comes down to the Atlanta shooting where six Asian women were gunned down and. Sure. And yeah, three spas it's, it's very like, it's really sickening. All of the weird, um, facts that came out of it, like where the law enforcement stance was, well, well, he had a bad day. You know, those kinds of like mm-hmm. things to me are really sickening. And so it sort of sparked my interest in wanting to go deeper into what is this that makes this not seem like a hate crime to people? Right. Why do people not see that? And so wanting to go, with more intention and more focus. And, and then through that, I unearthed a lot of history that I had no idea about. And having some awareness of Asian American history, but having no idea about so many of these hate crimes that have been happening for hundreds of years is really shocking.
1: While at first glance, the label model minority might appear seemingly benign, In the words of Margaret Cho, it is very much a backhanded compliment, and let's face it, as toxic as it gets. These two seemingly incongruous words, once put together, activated, and ultimately forged the idea of Asian Americans as being separate and apart from other minorities, while at the same time, also rendering them nearly invisible to large swaths of people in this country. Asian-Americans became the ultimate other and to many within the community that left them with no pathway to assimilation. Ironically, their so-called exemplary ways of being or you could call it their model behavior also left them tagged as meek and mild-mannered. Now these additional labels may be partially emboldening those who have so readily targeted them during this pandemic. For me, Hearing Margaret describe how this model minority label distorted her immigrant parents' experiences here in the US and created a trauma that gnawed at her own personal sense of identity, was an experience in bearing witness to the painful and destructive generational impact of stereotypes. All of it serves as yet another reminder of why activists need to fight for a change in harmful language just as passionately as we fight to put an end to harmful physical practices and norms. We'll be right back after a very quick break. The Accidental Activist is exclusively sponsored by our friends at Mercedes-Benz. Mercedes-Benz is an active supporter of gender equality and women's empowerment, starting from within. Nicolette Lombred. Vice President and Managing Director of Mercedes-Benz Vans USA and Diana DiPrio, Vice President of Customer Services, are just two examples of leading women who have pioneered their careers while advancing at the company. Nicole joined Mercedes-Benz over 20 years ago as a graduate trainee, while Diana started out 30 years ago as a vehicle sales planner. Having worked their way up to top leadership roles at the company, they know just how important it is to be heard and the power of using your voice. Through mentorship programs and networks that foster trust and community, both Nicolette and Diana have become internal sponsors of diverse initiatives that support women in the automotive industry. Their efforts are part of a larger ongoing commitment from the company towards gender equality. Thank you, Mercedes-Benz, for partnering with The Accidental Activist and for supporting those driving change. Welcome back to The Accidental Activist and part two of my conversation with Margaret Cho. As this comedic trailblazer revealed before we went to break, her pivot from comedic provocateur to a comedian with a mission was triggered by tragedy. A shooting spree at three Atlanta area spas that resulted in the deaths of eight people, six of whom were of Asian descent. The heinous crime shocked and angered many of us, but for fellow Asian Americans, the atrocity obviously struck with a greater intensity. In addition to the pain and sorrow that her community felt, the killings triggered something else in Margaret. Fear. You're about to hear more about this and how she's now trying to catalyze that emotion into something positive. And we're also getting to grips with a completely different label. One that some of my guests grab and embrace loudly with pride, while others circle the term nervously, convinced that it brings along simply too much baggage. Yep. You guessed it. I'm talking about the term activist. You mentioned Atlanta, the Atlanta area shootings, but they came amid an uptick in violence in general Mm -hmm. against Asian Americans and the Asian community. How did that violence personally impact you?
0: I was really scared. I'm still scared. I mean, I'm scared to go anywhere. I'm an older Asian woman. It's prime target. For any kind of this violence, whether it's being shot, being set on fire, punched, being, being punched, injured, you, the yeah. hammer—I mean, yeah, <laughs> I know, I, mean, it's like I a know, unbelievable—it's unbelievable, and it's every day. This is really scary. Like, it's really actually very real. And I think that violence against women of color is always a threat. You know, it's like mm-hmm. every time you go anywhere, having this body is a threat for some reason. So it's it's also a good way to. um, work through that fear with comedy right? and trying to figure out how to talk about these fears and make a way to hope for better through laughter, which is starting to take form. You know, it's hard because sometimes even like, you know, in a comedy audience, like I've been doing these jokes and people are just like, I don't know if I can laugh about that. But it's really like it's not la- I'm not laughing at these victims because I am actually talking about it from a victim perspective. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's finding some catharsis through the fear and working through that which I think is is really helpful.
1: So that makes me wonder, you know, again for you as somebody who's fighting for change, how hard that effort is when for some people it's too soon to acknowledge for others the issue doesn't exist for others within the community, they'd rather they were silent. Mm-hmm. How how hard is it to take on that kind of issue?
0: It's hard, but it's also a natural thing that happens, you know, when you read about these things that happen, like you go, oh, well, that, that actually the only way that I can get through thinking about this is actually to find the hope in it and find the joy in it. Like I was just watching and looking and trying to figure out, like, where is the hopeful Note there. There's got to be something. So, it's a journey because it's even I don't want to look at it because I don't want to admit that the world is racist. I don't want to admit that there's these hate crimes happening, but they are.
1: Did anything shift? You think there was a step forward taken with the light shone on this on this issue?
0: Yes, definitely. There was a big shift, and for myself, it was more of a shift of like, oh, I have to actually take this into action because I'm so scared that I have to put my anxiety into action and activism, which is really kind of what I always do with my own fear is just put action in underneath that. And so it may take a while for things to change, but I think that they will. I think for the Asian American community at all of our different intersections realized we had to come together. Cause there's so many like ideas of like, we always want to say we're not a monolith, but we actually kind of need to be in this particular situation.
1: Do you embrace the label of activist?
0: Yes, absolutely. What does it mean to you? To me, it's like uh, somebody who is taking their thought forms and putting them into function. It's really about taking these fears and trying to work through them with doing something about it, whether that is climate change, whether that is sexism, homophobia, racism, whatever it is that you're fighting against taking some action to uh, be bold enough to create change there.
1: You don't just speak up on matters of anti-Asian hate. You speak up about bullying. Mm-hmm. You speak about on LGBTQI issues. How do you choose what to speak up on?
0: Well, so those are all things that I am. I come from a, a place of being bullied as a child because of being queer. To feeling very out of place and knowing that there's a lot of people struggling with that still, you know, um, whether there are children or adults, is so you can be bullied in any situation. So you know, to know that you can rise above it and survive is really important to be a sexual abuse survivor and to survive those things. That's really important to know, like to share the experience of surviving. All of those things are they're important for me to talk about because they're things that I've overcome and that I still want to. Continue to be able to sort of share about it because it helps me.
1: You've um, been described, and I don't know if you use the words yourself as the patron saint of outsiders. Yeah uh, I speaking like that. <laughs> for those who are not able: Yeah, speaking for those who are not able to speak up for themselves and encouraging others to use their voice to promote change. Talk to me about that sense of responsibility, and have you become more emboldened, and have you grown in yourself your own sense of being? empowered to speak out as you've gotten older
0: yeah for sure because uh, then you become into a different space of being an older woman which in entertainment is very uh, (laughs) very like weird place to be in because you become invisible as you age as you sort of become quote-unquote sexually not viable (laughs) it's non-relevant
1: non-relevant sexually non-relevant it's
0: very strange to kind of feel that because i i don't feel that myself you know but that feeling of like invisibility is really destructive and, and not uh, not what I want to be doing. So you want to get louder. And then ultimately, if you're feeling invisible and all of these things that sort of other other, there's nothing to lose. I have nothing at stake by speaking out, which is, I think, the best part.
1: So you don't feel that there's ever you've ever paid a price for being too outspoken?
0: I think I probably have, but I don't know exactly. I can't pinpoint what that would be. I mean, I'm sure, but I think I've paid more of a price for my queerness, my race, my gender. my I mean, my progressive activism is it's sort of like, that's just like the, the tip of it. Right. <laughs> the rest of it has more to do, you know, the, the, the rest of it has more to do with it. Just the who I am is kind of like not what is um, sort of, When you think of an entertainer, you don't automatically think of a a queer Asian American woman.
1: How do your parents feel about you so openly discussing your labels, so to speak, and your trials and tribulations with finding your space?
0: Well, they really love it because they can really um, see how America has changed since they got here. So I think for them, it's It's gratifying because they see that, you know, this very racist, very white supremacist country that they emigrated to is finally really starting to embrace us all as Americans, which I think is really great for them. They understand queerness. They understand gayness. They don't understand bisexuality. They don't understand switching. They're like, you're gay or you're straight. You can't be (laughs) bisexual because they've had so many instances within their experience within the queer community where people have come out and not gone back <laughs> <laughs> so they're like when you're gay you're gay that's the point of no return when you're gay you can't go they they, they feel like it's inauthentic to uh go because the thing if you're gay you're gay all the way
1: <laughs> as at any point has that made you feel like invisible invisible
0: Yes. Well, the bisexuality component to my identity has always been a very weird thing within the larger LGBTQIA community, because I think everybody feels that way. If you're gay, you can't go back. And it's not even like being, you know, in a heterosexual sort of context is even going back because that other person could be queer, too. So Absolutely. It's, it's not even correct, but I think we do have very binary ways of thinking about whether gay or straight. It's very, to me, it's, it's very old fashioned, but that, that's the one thing that is very hard for me to convince my parents of that, that it's, a, it's, it's a thing.
1: How do you judge whether or not you're making a difference?
0: Well, I guess I see it more now in like, I see a lot of queer Asian American comedians out there and I realize, oh, that could only have come from my influence. And that's true. You know, I think that's really um, been confirmed to me. I mean, not just not just queerness, but Asian American comedians in general always thank me so much for them being inspired by my appearance. And so that's really great. So I know that I've I've made a difference in that I've created. Um, a generation of Asian-American comedians, which can only make comedy better, which is really a great, great, <laughs> great, great, great thing.
1: Does it come with a sense of pressure once you've spoken up repeatedly that do you ever go, no, you know, actually, I don't want to speak up on that. I just want to like fall back on this issue. But now there's an expectation. I'm wondering for you what the challenges are of activism.
0: I don't think there are any challenges. I mean, I think it's like more of a challenge to stay silent about things that I care about. You know, I have a very deep compassion for all of these people who have suffered because of anti-Asian hate crimes and and I'm very upset about it. So those are things like I I need to do something with my sort of sadness and fear around that. Um so I don't think it's like pressure necessarily. I think it's just wanting things to change.
1: Some sit in the space where they speak up and they use their voice in an intentional way and a consistent way. Others go down a slightly different path where they do so and they build organizations. Do you ever see yourself taking another step in the activism?
0: That would be great. I mean, that's something that's always possible in the future. Right now, I'm kind of like looking to expand my own understanding of what our history is. And so, doing my podcast, Mortal Minority, which is all about. Asian American hate crimes and, and what the history and context has been over that. So that's like kind of been my role there. So that's my one Mm -hmm. step going deeper. But yeah, I love that there are enduring organizations that are coming up now around stopping Asian hate. And I think that's really cool
1: what comes next in your comedy? I mean, what's taking shape in your mind now?
0: I think a lot of things. I mean, it's just like the fears and the anxieties that we're sort of living in in a world full of fears. I think those are really something that's inspiring my writing and also everybody's emerging at the same time, I think. So this is all, it's sort of a new world that we're venturing out into. So I think that's inspiring me right now.
1: So, It's that time in the show when I ask my guests to share some words of wisdom or inspirational insight with the activist community. This week, I thought I'd also help out mission-driven podcasters too. So when you, you look to what comes next, doing the podcasting and you are doing the activism, you're figuring this out as much as most people who are listening to this podcast are. What's your advice to those who, you know, everyone's got everyone's got a podcast these days, myself included, and everyone these days seems to be an activist. What's your one piece of advice to both communities? And there can be different pieces of advice to how to do both better.
0: I think to under, understand all sides and to know what you're fighting for and to know what you want, and also to just know that making a statement is really important. So we need to be out there. We need, we still, you know, there are a lot of voices, but we can still have more. And it's really important to add your voice to all of the things that are going on. Final question.
1: In an alternative universe, what would you be doing? What labels would you choose for yourself?
0: I would probably be a veterinarian. I think I'm a veterinarian <laughs> because I've had to give my cat injections. And so now <laughs> it's been like a month and I feel like I've gotten her really in good shape. I give her a CBD. She broke her leg. And so oh, she's, no. she's doing so much better now. But I've been uh, doing a lot of her um, care with a vet too. But uh, okay, also- I was just
1: hoping there was supervision. Yes,
0: definitely. Um, but I was able to after she was. She was actually at the animal hospital for a while, and Thank then I've got to bring her home and and take on all the stuff that the vet has asked me to do. And so she's doing so great. So I, I think veterinary medicine is the goal. That would be the, <laughs> <is> the calling. <laughs> that would be the label
1: in another universe. Yes. <laughs> it's it's a, it's a noble one Yes, Margaret shows such a pleasure thank you thank you for joining us on The Accidental Activist thank you for Margaret not speaking up about issues such as Asian American hate and violence is not an option as she said it's more of a challenge to stay silent about the things that I care about using her voice is both a moral imperative and her way of working through her fear The skill of transforming fear into fuel is one that every activist would do well to master, because I think that buried amid all the passion and conviction that is driving the work that most of us are doing is some element of fear, be it fear for the fate of ourselves, our families or communities, or the fear of worsening threats facing others in distant lands. You may have to dig, But a little fear is lurking within us all. But we cannot let that emotion paralyze our voices. Now more than ever, with so many issues imperiling the world, Margaret's words should be heard as a call to action. And so I'll say them again. We need to be out there. There are a lot of voices, but we can still have more. It's really important to add your voice to all of the things that are going on. The only thing left for me to ask is, will you add your voice to this critical chorus? Thank you so much for listening. Please take time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Follow me at Aisha Sasseh on Twitter and on Instagram at I am Aisha The Accidental Activist is a Wonder Media Network production in partnership with Arella Productions. Executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Aisha Sassé. Our producers are Brittany Martinez and Taylor Williamson. Until the next time, take care, everyone, and bye for now.
2: Hello, I'm Grace Lynch. I'm a senior producer with Wonder Media Network and host of another WMN original, As She Rises. Climate change often feels untouchable. Other times, we're so close to it that it's exhausting. It begs the question, how can we understand the climate crisis when we're living through it? Enter season two of As She Rises, a podcast centering native voices and women of color that personalizes the elusive magnitude of climate change. As She Rises combines poetry and storytelling to offer an intimate look at the climate crisis. Each week, you hear from poets and experts local to one place in the U.S. and territories. From the coral reefs of American Samoa to the sacred land of the Pueblo Nation, we learn how climate change is affecting hometowns and what communities are doing to address it. Listen and follow As She Rises wherever you get your podcasts.